All right, while you're turning in First Peter, um, and by the way, the, um, the, the, the songs this morning just bookend the message in an extraordinary way. That last song we just sang, through it all, through it all, my eyes are on you. You'll see mirrored in the message. And then the song we're going to close with is Let Faith Arise. And you'll see the context for that this morning. And I think you'll be able to enter into that with a full heart. I thought worship was just spectacular this morning. So I uh, felt really led in it. But uh, let me set the stage for First Peter here as we now uh, wind up in chapter 3. Uh, the Expositor's Bible Commentary, which is the one I use, and it's the one that uh, I think it's really great, says that from this point on in First Peter, the theme is Christian conduct under persecution. All right, so that's where we're going over the next couple chapters. Um, we've actually seen this theme in earlier places, but it becomes the primary emphasis now of what we're going to enter into. Francis Schaeffer, some of you may remember that name, uh, penned a book a while ago called How Shall We Then Live? And he talked about, uh, this was way back in the 70s, about the, the uh, change that was coming as a culture as we move away from the Judeo-Christian effect. And he said, you can watch for these things in the culture and here's what's going to happen. And if you go back and read that book, you'll find out he was absolutely prophetic because the things he said uh, some 30, 40 years ago are now being played out in our culture today. And so the question is, how do we stand in the midst of when we are now in that culture. Christian responsibility, the Christian's responsibility stance um, as things have culturally shifted away from what we know the Lord has given us. And uh, the Lord popped a couple things in my mind that tie with this idea. The first one was in Jeremiah, uh, which says this, and I think it's a great word to us who've had it good for so long. It says, if you've raced with men on foot and they've worn you out, how you compete with the horses? And if in a safe land, or another translation says the green land, in the safe land or green land, if you're trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? In other words, the, the thrust here, the idea is, if you've had a hard time when things are really good, what are you going to do when things get difficult? How are you going to walk with God when things get really hard? And that's the emphasis that Peter's launching into and taking us to of how do we respond when things get really hard. A second perspective that emerges from 1 Peter is, and we're going to see a lot of this, is the supremacy of Christ. That Peter's answer to that is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Through his resurrection and ascension into heaven, he becomes uh, the great focus for the church. Uh, Peter's going to draw two parallels, the terrors or fears that are on this level versus the terror and fear that should be on this level, the respect and honor that's due God. And so uh, we're going to be looking at it. Isaiah captured this. Uh, I'm in reading in Isaiah right now, uh, going through the Bible, and I hope the rest of you are doing some form of that as well. But uh, he is trying to warn Israel in conditions that are very similar to ours. When Isaiah started out, uh, the nation was doing good. They were under Uzziah. It was a boom time. And as it kept going, uh, it went through uh, to Hezekiah and then uh, eventually on to Manasseh. And uh, that's where legend says that Isaiah was stuffed in a log and then sawed in two. All right? Manasseh was a great guy. And um, 
But he was talking, and Isaiah, God said this to Isaiah, and I think this is a great word for us as well. It said, For the Lord spoke thus to me, in other words, to Isaiah, with his strong hand upon me. In other words, do you feel that hand of conviction? Do you feel that coming from the Lord? That's what he's saying there. And he warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Do we live in an age of conspiracy or what? Right? Everything is rumor and innuendo and uh, that kind of stuff. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him shall you honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And Peter points uh, his group in the same direction. And so we're going to point us in the same direction this morning. So let's take... And uh, actually, we should pray. Let's pray again, all right? Father, as we go into this, we understand that it's not our rational mind that you're speaking here to. You can use our mind, but it's to our spirit you're talking to. And so, Lord, may we be listening this morning. And in places where you've had a long conversation, in places where we need to be reminded, in places where the knees are weak and wobbly, may we be strengthened. In places where the hands are shaky, may you give us confidence. Lord, uh, be among us. Talk, converse, and uh, use the message this morning to get us pointed in a right direction that you've always pointed to. That's your son. And may he be honored today, and we give that to you in your name. Amen. All right. All right, so there's um, too much to read here, but uh, we'll read. We're reading uh, from verse 13 to 22, and then we'll break it up in parts. So it reads like this, starting in verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 3. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ as the Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. right? Quite a passage. Let's begin. We'll break it down in the first part and and take a look. It says, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you. So Peter starts here with what I think is a pretty amazing point. And the point that he's making is that no authority, not even government, 
goes out of its way to punish good citizens. In other words, government usually awards or applauds good citizenship. And, and he's making that point because he's telling the church to operate within the authority structures that have been given. Now, why is this so amazing? I think it's amazing because think of who Peter is. Peter's a Jew, right? And he's talking to Jewish citizens, but he's also talking to Roman citizens. And so Peter knew full well how the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities had treated Jesus when he was here on the earth. Did it go, out, go so well for Jesus? No, not really, right? And yet here's Peter saying that we should be uh, subject to the authorities that God has put in place. Uh, if you think about it, he also knew what he and Paul had run into in their efforts to spread the gospel of the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Paul paid a heavy price. And you can look uh, in several of the New Testament books and it lays out all the things that happened to him. Peter himself was about to pay a great price, very similar to what Jesus himself had paid. And he was in Rome. So he didn't have to talk about the corruption of it. He could see the corruption of it and he could see how corrupt the government was. And so... Yet in the midst of that, he categorically states that you will be in good shape if you're zealous for doing good. And he adds, even if things do go sideways, you will, if you suffer and you suffer, you will be blessed. Now, why blessed? He says, well, you'll be blessed because you'll be walking in the same shoes that Jesus did, and God will honor that. But then he says something that I think is even more amazing. He says that even if it goes sideways, have no fear of them. Right? Remember last week we were talking about what, what are your fears? What are you afraid of? You know, guys, well, I'm not afraid of nothing, right? And gals, I'm afraid of everything, right? But the guys are bluffing. They're blowing smoke, gals. Trust me. They're afraid of a lot. We're afraid of our own shadow half the time. And... Uh, and, and so he points out something really amazing. He says, have no fear of them and don't be troubled. Are we fearful and troubled as a culture? Are we not swallowed up with that? And I think this is a wonderful admonition to us, uh, not just to the church that Peter was talking about. It's amazing because if you think about it, the authorities that Peter is talking about are absolutely terrifying, right? You didn't mess with the Roman government. They had ways of letting you know that that wasn't a very good option. And you probably, uh, as you've been walking around, right, especially during summer, you see the, the shirts, no fear, right? That, that, that's a big popular thing. I found that that's easy to wear or say, hard to do, Right? It's one thing to say that. It's another thing to actually be able to, to do that. And my experience with life is that it's easy to caught up, be caught up in fear, easy to be troubled. We are a culture that's ripped by, ripped by fear. And, um, you know, it even extends to even things like our politics, right? We're in the midst of the political thing right now. And our politics are not based off of what does the candidate stand for and what is, how will he fix the problems we have? It's based off of fear-mongering. Yeah, I may not be the greatest candidate in the world, but if you elect, elect see smudgy so-and-so, the whole thing's going to hell in a handbasket, all right? You're going to lose your country. You're going to lose your car. You're going to lose your mother. You're going to lose your dog. You're going to lose your cat, right? I mean, 
That, and it's all based off of that kind of, that kind of appeal. And I think Peter, if you know his life, is not pulling this out of thin air. I think he's pulling it directly from his own experience and mistakes and using it to coach others not to make the same mistakes he did. I think he well remembers how he and the rest of the disciples fled the garden scene when Jesus was arrested. Remember that little story? Smack, poof, they all went. And uh, I think he knows how he got overcome with fear there. And I think he even more clearly remembers when he was so full of fear of the Jewish authorities that he lied that he even knew Jesus at all. Right? Totally inconsistent with his character and his nature. Uh, Peter, Peter was overwhelmed by their authority. Think about growing up being Jewish in Peter's day. And remember that Peter was not a city kid. He did not come from Jerusalem. He was a country bumpkin out there by the Sea of Galilee, probably Capernaum. And uh, so he was way out in the sticks. The idea that you go to Jerusalem... You go up to Jerusalem, you go to the temple was, you know, just awe. And so you didn't mess with that kind of authority. You wouldn't dare, for example, oppose your synagogue leader, right? That was not something you did back in that day. Uh, you wouldn't dream of crossing the temple guard. They actually had weapons and knew how to use them, right? Uh, it would have been beyond thought to challenge the Sanhedrin. And absolutely unthinkable to oppose the high priest. That was God's man, right? In many senses, uh, infallible. And so you wouldn't dare uh, take those guys on. So overwhelming was this fear that Peter lied to a little girl that he knew Jesus. It absolutely strapped him. And looking back on that, I think Peter also realized some other things happened that helped him uh, through that. Peter knew what it was like to meet the resurrected Jesus. Right? He ran into him. He knew what it was like to be forgiven by Jesus. He knew what it was like to be reinstated to ministry by Jesus. Right? So he's no longer disqualified. And he knew from firsthand experience which fear was greater. And so he coached his church in what he had learned. Don't be troubled. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And I just want to reaffirm something so basic that we often blow by it. But I can't tell you the mistakes I see that Christians are making and it boils down to two things. Number one, they're not reading their Bible and number two, they're not praying. And they are making uh, horrendous mistakes. And I just want to encourage you this morning as we head towards summer, uh, don't take a vacation from obedience, right? Yes, go on vacation, but when you go on vacation, there's a church around there somewhere. Go find it. Okay, you're not crippled. You can walk into a church, meet some other believers. You're going to spend eternity with them anyways. You might as well find out who they are. <laughs> and stay in your word, right? Stay in your word and keep praying because when we get away from it, it's amazing how fast you can drift and just weeks go from being full of faith to dried up and, and making terrible choices uh, that carry disastrous results. Don't be troubled. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Honor Christ as Lord in all the circumstances of your life is what Peter's saying. And always, Peter says, be ready to give a defense. In other words, as people are responding, be ready to give a defense of the hope that's within you. And he then gives a key insight on not only what to do, but of how to do it. Look at what he says here. He says, yet do this when you are uh, asked to give a defense for why you do what you do. 
Do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Notice the admonition here is in the context of when you are being slandered. Right? We, we've talked about this before, but slandering is almost universally hostile and toxic in nature. You don't have somebody come up and, Hey, Ray, buddy, how you doing? Good, Steve, you want to have coffee? Yeah. Hey, Ray, I want to slander you today. Okay? That's not how it goes, right? Usually you can sense the hostility from uh, across the room as it's coming. You, you know you're going to get decked, right? You can feel it. And when they speak to you, it is like flames coming out, and they are going to rip you. And so Peter's talking about how you respond in that context. Slandering by nature and definition, what makes it so difficult is that it is an attack on our character and on our reputation. So somebody's going after not just a position or an idea, they're going after you're an idiot for holding that position or an idea. Does that sound like our culture today? That's what they were experiencing. So in a fight then, how is one to respond? Okay. Now, This is important because most of us learned our conflict resolution skills not from the Bible, uh, but from our parents. Now, if we had godly parents, you you got one leg up here. Hopefully you learned skills, what this is talking about. But most of us learned it from our parents. And where did our parents learn their conflict resolution skills from? Their parents, okay? Was all of that Bible-based? No, not so much, right? And you know how we know? Because when the pressure hits and someone gets in our grill and starts to smack on us, how do we respond? With gentleness and respect or fire with fire? Fire with fire, right? You want, you want to do this dance? Bring it on. Let's go, right? And bam, 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 bam. Oh, yeah, bam, 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 right? And we jack that sucker up and punt it into the middle of the next week and let them have it. Walk away, well, I probably shouldn't have done that, but they deserved it, right? And... We go, oh, not so good, right? This is exactly what Peter is countering here. We saw the admonition last week. Remember, Peter was talking about do not return evil for evil. And the other word that he said, or reviling for reviling. So in here, he's talking about when you're slandered and people revile you, especially for being a Christian. Uh, High school, junior high, this is totally true for you guys, right? Because then mock and make, all kinds of your stupid jokes you know on this deal how are we um, to answer and peter's answer is you don't fight fire with fire when being reviled or slandered for being a christian and actually i would suggest this is good advice um, in any kind of conflict but especially in this setting don't drop down to the lowest common denominator right it is just easy in human nature to drop down to the lowest common denominator get a bunch of guys Right? And really soon the jokes start to go to what? Crotch level jokes, right? It drops down. Put a groom of teenagers, put 500 teenagers in the room, take all the adults out, let them do whatever they want. Does it go to the highest denominator or the lowest? Lowest, okay? When we get away from church and all our other Christian influence and we're by ourselves and we can think or do whatever we want, does it tend to go to the highest or does it tend to go to the lowest? It tends to go to the lowest, right? And so Peter knows that and is saying, look, don't drop 
to the lowest common denominator. Keep a good conscience and answer back with gentleness and respect. Now, the question I'd like to raise this morning, so is God crazy? Is he just stupid dumb? Does he just not get it? And he's not in your school. He's not in your home. He's not in your neighborhood. He's not at your job with those wonderful, blessed people you work with. And he's not right in your territory or your turf or your neighborhood. Is is God, God just clueless? Does he expect us just to lay down and take it? Are we supposed to be just rhetorical roadkill? Thank you. Thank you. You know, kind of like a, a cartoon character sort of thing. I want to suggest that Peter's advocating we follow the pattern that Jesus modeled for us. See if some of these don't make sense to you. Proverbs uh, 17, 14 says, The beginning of strife is like the letting out of water, so quit or abandon before a quarrel breaks out. Right? You ever been in a fight? Maybe even with your marriage partner and the Holy Spirit said to you, Stop, don't say it. And then you just, right? And when you do that, what is it like? It's like the spilling out of water, right? How easy it would be to put that back in the bucket? Not easy at all. There's a debris trail from here to China now that you've got to work through. And what could have taken maybe three minutes if you just kept your lip zipped now takes three months to work through and re-earn trust. Anybody been there? Right? Okay. So Proverbs uh, 18.6 says, A fool's lips walk into a fight and his mouth invites a beating. Isn't that true? Flapping lips, boom, right? Just jack that sucker into next week. And you see that happen to people all the time. If they don't listen to the Holy Spirit, they open their mouth and they get jacked. Okay? Uh, I've told students, you look, you keep talking like that, you you go to high school, you're going to get killed. Someone is going to jack you into your locker. Okay? (laughs) Because they're not Christian and they don't care. Okay? You've lived in this Christian environment and you think you can be a smart aleck with your mouth and people are going to put up with it. You get to high school, they're going to pound you. Right? So you better learn to zip your lips because if not, they're going to be puffy and it's not going to be Botox. All right? <laughs> Proverbs 15.1 says this, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You know, and many here, uh, especially leadership team, one of the things we look for is men who are not contentious. Why? Because if you get a group of alpha males in a room and, and you start jacking some testosterone and you start getting some opinions thrown out there, it's really easy for the dogs to jump at the meat and just keep going. Right? And it takes a, a person of wisdom to say, hey, slow down a second. Could we back up? We're getting a little animated. Let's go back to the original point. What were we trying to accomplish? Oh, yeah. What was it we were trying? Oh, okay. And it pulls it back, right? It's talking about having a gift of wisdom here. Proverbs 15.25 says, With patience a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft, or another word there is gentle, a soft or gentle tongue will break a bone. And what God's saying is, hey, gentleness is actually incredibly powerful if we would actually exercise it and know how to use it. And guys, gentleness is not weakness. Okay, as soon as we hear that word, we okay, I'm a wimpy, okay, Christian, you know, kind of thing. That is not what it means. Moses was a jacked up buff dude. All right, it says he was the meekest or gentlest man on the face of the earth, yet he had the power to kill a man with his bare hands. And it didn't seem like it was a long struggle. He was a don't be missing kick ass dude. All right, can we say that in church? Yes, we can. All right, 
Well, maybe we, I, all right, there we go. So when lightning hits, you'll be safe. But that's a powerful guy, all right? Men, you hear me? And yet by that very power, we are required by God to be more gentle. We are required to be gentle in our actions. We are required to be gentle physically. We're required to be gentle in our tone and our speech. So much of it, say, well, I didn't say anything. Well, yeah, maybe not verbally, but by your tone, you were emanating waves on the wah, 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 right? You think your wife can't pick up on that? Right? We've got to deal with our anger. We've got to become gentle. Why? Because it's incredibly powerful. Jesus said this, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy. Last week, remember I said, Who's your enemy? Remember? We said, Who's your enemy? Who, you hate? Who really ticks you off? Who, who irritates you? Who The name comes up in instant flare. Who's your enemy? Peter's saying, be like Jesus, not like the world. Ask God to give you a love. Give eyes. Give, ask God to give you his eyes for that person. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And notice this is exactly where Peter goes. He's going to point us in the exact same direction, the ultimate example of Jesus, where he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Why was Jesus gentle? So that he might bring us to himself. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Peter anchors this exhortation in the reminder of not only what Jesus went through for us, but also how he went through it. Right? We, have, we have recorded testimonies of how Jesus handled that crisis. We have his words of how he responded to the people who spoke to him in a slanderous and reviling way. And if it's galling for us on our level, can you imagine what that must have felt like to him? And yet he responded in gentleness and respect, and his example has won the world over. You don't remember the names of the ones who persecuted him. And that all of this was done that we might come to God. That we might come into a relationship with him. The next few verses are some of the most amazing verses in the Bible. There's all kinds of gives and takes on it. But uh, Peter acknowledges that Jesus was put to death in the flesh, and through the resurrection, made alive in the spirit. And in that state, he went and preached. Uh, the sense here is we would understand it as announced or declared. Okay, So he wasn't preaching in the sense of speaking to people that they might be saved. He's announcing to these spirits his victory on the cross and his resurrection from the dead and what that meant for the order of the universe. Uh, there's a lot of debate on this passage, right? The Apostles' Creed says that he, Jesus, descended into hell, right? And the third day rose again from the dead. Uh, a lot of Bible scholars say, well, how he didn't go to hell because how could an all-holy resurrected Christ could not be in hell, right? And then others say, well, why not? He created it, and right? There's all that kind of debate. But um, there's debates on how and exactly where this announcement took place. But from a 30,000-foot level this morning, 
it is enormously, uh, the viewpoint is that something enormously wicked went on before the flood. Uh, you get um, hints of that uh, as you read through the Old Testament. Uh, and that God, it says here that God waited patiently 120 years before he brought the flood. That's a lot longer than we'd wait, right? Remember in that day there was no rain and Noah's building a boat where there's no water. And people are going, okay, Looney Tunes, what's with you, right? Oh, a flood's going to come and it's going to wipe out the world. Now here's something else that is skipping in our culture that didn't skip in this culture. In Peter's day, the flood narrative held great um, value. In other words, it held, there was, uh, the flood narrative was well known all over the world and people saw it as the ultimate judgment of God and lived in the fact that there could be another flood like that. Okay, we don't, have that today we kind of ah whatever that's yeah you know it was a regional flood it was a little flood is that kind of, oh besides god gave the rainbow so it can't flood like that again right and we don't we don't have the respect for it for what it really really was but god waited 120 years before he brought the flood and of which the whole world in a sense was baptized and out of that only eight people were saved put that in your mind Think about the world being flooded today and thinking about uh, the people and thinking about um, there's only one place to run to where you can be saved. And that's that ark. There's no other place. There's no place you can crawl on the ground and hide. There's no place high enough. There's no mountain that you can go to that you're going to escape. There's only one place to go. That is that ark. And that ark represents Jesus Christ. And it says, out of that, only eight people fled to that ark. Now, there is the possibility that they could have dawdled as well. Right? Well, not today, Lord. See, I'm busy. It's a nice boat you got there, but I got other things to do. Yeah, I should repent right now, but, mm, you know, I'm not so sure I want to get to that point yet, so I'm going to put it off uh, But when the flood hits, do you necessarily have time to put all the pieces together? No. I mean, think about up at camp and what we just said. You know, one of the things, it's a tremendous opportunity for God to illustrate, hey, even if you're a teenager, you're not bulletproof, right? You're not guaranteed 60 years. The Bible says when you hear his voice, don't reject it. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart, according to Hebrews. Why? Because when the flood hits, you don't have time. You go when God says to go, not when you feel like going. And we are to flee to Christ just as Noah and his family fled to the ark. Look where Peter takes this. He says, baptism then, which corresponds to this, what we just talked about, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So Peter here is using the whole process of salvation. He's being drawn by God, receiving saving grace, repentance, confessions of sin, acknowledging Christ as Savior and Lord, and being baptized into his name. He's using that whole process to say this baptism saves you. 
and corresponds to this last step then. And the idea being that no one who isn't saved uh, gets baptized. Right? You, you don't want to get baptized if you're not saved. There's no, no purpose for it. And likewise, no one wants to get baptized unless they're saved. Right? When you get saved, suddenly the issue, hey, I, that baptism thing, I, 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 I should do that, right? Well, who told you? I, I, nobody told me. I just I'm, I think I need to do that. Okay. Well, where does that come from? It comes from the Holy Spirit. It comes from the fact that, you know, non-believers don't care if, if they're baptized. Go to a non-believer neighbor and say, hey, have you been baptized? No, why? What? Baptism? What? what are you talking about? doesn't make any sense to them. Right? Likewise, if people aren't searching out Christ, it doesn't make any sense to them. This Jesus, what he's done is saved us and uh, we're put in right standing of God with a good conscience. Right? The tremendous gift of the Holy Spirit is we have a clear conscience before God. I didn't have a clear conscience before I knew Christ. Right? And what I found in my Christian life is that Satan is very good at keeping me muddled uh, by flipping on the screen. How he keeps me muddled is taking me back to the times when I didn't have a good conscience. So I start out the day with a good conscience. Then he reminds me of things I did back here. They say, oh, look at what you did. Right? And he flips it up on the screen. And half the time I go, oh, I already asked God for forgiveness on that. Half the time I have to go back to God and apologize for what it really looked like now because I recognize it. But in this issue here, Jesus has gone through the heavens. He's now seated at the right hand of the Father. This Jesus has declared his supremacy and victory to everything and everyone in the spiritual realm. And it says all, all the angels, all the authorities, all the powers have been subjected to him. What he was saying what Peter's trying to say here in this illustration is back in the day of Noah, there were some really wicked things going on and God came to speak. And when he came to speak, nobody was listening, but he built an ark and out of that he saved eight people of which we all come from. All right? And what he's saying is this Jesus then died on the cross just like that ark. He was that saving person. When he rose from the dead, he declared to those spirits. In other words, what he, he's not preaching to them. What he's saying to them is, look, you once had control and you once tried to do evil and you tried to overdo this. All the keys of the kingdom now are handed to me. They're no longer in the devil's hands. They're no longer in the spirit's hands. He was declaring to them in prison, I now have the keys to the kingdom. They are mine. And that's very important for us to know. Satan does not hold the keys to the kingdom anymore. Jesus does. And so if you're not saved this morning, then you're encouraged to flee to that Jesus just as Noah's family fled to the ark. Okay? You need to flee to him. You need to run to him. You need to go to him and say, you know what, that salvation thing? I've been stalling on that. I, I, need, to, I need to deal with that. I need to deal with you. I, I need to surrender. You're right. I've been doing my own thing. I need to stop at that. And if we're saved this morning, we're encouraged to fully entrust ourselves to him, even if we're going to face persecution and be slandered for his name, that we would learn how to respond with gentleness and respect, but always being willing to give a defense for the hope that, was, that is within us. Okay? Yeah, here's what I want to suggest. 
You might as well practice. You know, practice means perfect. You ever had to do one big thing, you get up on stage and you flub it, right? Because it's just too much all at once. But if you practice it several times, you actually get really good at it, all right? Uh, God's given me 38 years to work through all my mistakes. I sound pretty good now, right? And I still make mistakes. But you, you learn that way. Well, one of the ways you learn to give a defense is to practice that and to share that with other people. What Peter's trying to say is that they had to have fortitude and we have to have fortitude knowing that we have a strong, living, and present champion who intercedes for us at the right hand of God and makes his presence known to us through his spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, who strengthens us for whatever may come our way. None of this catches God by surprise. None of the wickedness at the ark caught God by surprise and he didn't know what to do. None of what happened when Jesus came to earth and he was here present among us, even the crucifixion caught him by surprise. And none of this present world with all its uh, glamour and all its uh, puffed upness and we have gone far beyond God and left him behind and we don't need him anymore. Why is that even a conversation anymore? Matter of fact, religion is evil and it wrecks people. We need to get rid of it. Not even that surprises God. What it's saying is we have a really strong champion that we have to give ourselves to and that we have to take his grace so that we have fortitude no matter what comes because God will give us grace for whatever it is that we have to face if we ask for it. Right? You can go through it, it says, and be punished for doing wrong things or you can go through it and ask God what you're supposed to do and have him give you the grace that you're supposed to need. In this we have our confidence and our hope. And so what I want to say this morning is how do we get fortitude? You get fortitude by staying in the word. You get fortitude by praying. You get fortitude by staying in fellowship. It's really pretty simple. All right? You get fortitude by staying in the word. You get fortitude by praying. You get fortitude by staying in fellowship. So this summer, as we go into summer, don't take a break from obedience. Keep doing those three things. Lean into the word and God will give us a grace as a church no matter what comes in this next political cycle. All right? He is still king of the universe. And we need to give a defense, yet with gentleness and respect. Let's pray. Father, as we face this, we know that it's easy to be this way in church. It's hard when we're out on our own. And it's hard when we face the things that the world throws at us. And Lord, sometimes the hardest things to face are the internal battles that we face, the demons that chase us. And we have a hard time remembering to keep our eyes on you. Lord, circumstances seem to throw in the immediate accusation is, well, where is God for you? Where did he go? How come he isn't helping you? How come he's not there for you? Instead of saying, Lord, you're right here, right now. I just need to be still. And know your God. God, may we be still, know your God, and may faith arise. And we ask this in your name. Amen.